Hello everyone and welcome back to the InSync podcast. I am so excited for this podcast episode and I actually struggle to put in words what I'm going to say and this is therefore the, I don't know, 10th time that I'm recording this episode and hopefully this is now my last time. Actually, this is going to be my last time. So I just want to share some of that excitement and, and honor with as I'm introducing my guest who is no other than John Veveki, an award-winning lecturer at the University of Toronto who's been teaching courses in cognitive science, psychology, Buddhism and philosophy. John is also the author and presenter of the YouTube series Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. If you haven't heard of it, I highly recommend that you check him and his YouTube channel out. I personally came across John on the Aubrey Marcus podcast and later also on the Jordan Peterson podcast. And I just knew I had to speak with this guy. But it took me about three months of consuming his content to just get a grip on, his, on the depth of knowledge and the wisdom that he has. I guess, you know, that already says a lot. Um, if somebody needs about three months to just get their head around what the guy is actually talking about before they invite them to the podcast. And because of that, I, I had some serious FOMO, a fear of missing out for those who don't know, but I guess pretty much everyone who listens to this podcast will probably know. Talking to John, because he is really one of those people where you can go everywhere and nowhere at the same time. I mean, <clears throat> it's, it's really incredible. He has such a depth of knowledge and wisdom and uh, you could get lost in the un universe and never return and that will be fine as well. Because <laughs> I got to be honest, uh, some people are just so smart and switched on. It can be hard to keep up with their speed and depth. Maybe that's just me, but likely it's not. So I really try to, to ask relevant questions that can, that go deep, but at the same time, stay at the level that, you know, we can digest it, that our minds can digest it and our souls. And I don't know what needs to digest this kind of conversation. Anyway, in this episode, we talk about a couple of topics. Just to give you an idea, we talk about the meaning crisis and zombies. We talk about religion and spirituality. We talk about consciousness, transformation and community, how to share wisdom effectively, meaning in life, not meaning of life, but meaning in life, virtues, having and being modes. We talk about contemplation. We talk about psychedelics, we talk about spiritual bypassing, enlightenment and grounding. I mean, that is already plenty in 60 minutes and still I feel like I couldn't get enough out of him. So hopefully, John, I can welcome you back on my podcast sometime in the future. If you are watching this on YouTube, you will notice that you actually don't see me in the conversation because somehow I managed to change something in the recording so it didn't actually capture me and you will only hear John talking but that's okay you know he deserves the spotlight but just in case that's the case you hear somebody talking you see no face but as I said that's okay that's perfectly fine and if you are liking this podcast it would really mean a lot to me if you would share it with a friend or you share it on your social media or I don't know just help to spread the word you can also leave a review on Apple I wonder when they will add this on Spotify and uh, and that's it really you can subscribe for future episodes what else 
I think that's it. I hope that you will enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoyed this conversation. Please do send me feedback about John, about, I don't know, whatever you want to send me feedback on. Just share it me in the comments of my social media posts or send me a DM or whatnot. You know how to get in touch with me. All right. I wish you a lot of fun listening to this and hopefully a lot of insights arising. I would love to know from you um, a bit about your personal background and what led you to explore the meaning of life, because there's usually an event in people's lives themselves, right, that lets them go down the rabbit hole, usually. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a long story. Um, um, it has to do with the fact that um, I was originally brought up in a fundamentalist Christian household at extended family. Um, and when I left that, um, you know, and I, I, I did, uh, you know, did therapy and other things like that. I realized how uh, traumatizing that has been. And, and initially, my response to that was very um, sort of antagonistic, atheistic uh, uh, kind of thing. Um, but, you know, but the therapy and other things also helped me to realize that uh, that version of Christianity had been like my mother my mother tongue of, of spirituality, so to speak. It had given me a taste for the transcendent that um, wouldn't go away. Uh, and so I, 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 you know, I, I was confronted with uh, the hunger and the idea that the hunger wasn't, uh, or not the hunger, not the idea, the experience that the hunger wasn't being met. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, reading some, you know, novels, uh, started encountering Jung's thought, uh, uh, things like that, uh, some Eastern thought through Hermann Hesse. And then I went into university and I encountered the figure of Socrates. And this completely blew me away because it showed me that there was, an, there was a way of understanding spirituality as the cultivation of self-transcendence through wisdom. Um, and that just lit me on fire. Um, but as I went on in academic philosophy, the topic of wisdom just disappeared and it got into all this analytic conceptual analysis and meta science and uh, philosophy of science. And all of that was all of that is valuable, like reflecting on science, reflecting on history, reflecting on ethics, powerful tools, useful thing to do. But the hunger for the cultivation of wisdom to follow the Socratic pathway was not being met. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so there was down the street from me a place where they were teaching Tai Chi and meditation and um, contemplation, Vipassana meditation, meta-contemplation. That's where I originally encountered an ecology of practices. And I just, just let me, that was like, I practiced it profoundly. And I started to, the, the, the idea of that there were ways of cultivating wisdom, like really practicable ways of doing this really, really caught with me. And then I got, I did my MA basically in uh, philosophy and I just, I got, I was just so dis disillusioned, I left. I left what do you university. mean you were dis disillusioned? I was disillusioned that, you know, that, that, that the, the stuff I was doing in, in philosophy, well valuable, was not, was not lining up or in sync with what was the transformations that were occurring in me while I was doing the Tai Chi and the meditation and the contemplation. There was a dissonance in my life that, and it left me sort of like, ah. And so what happened is I was doing this and I was just 
took up life as a professional tutor and I was just sort of drifting along. And then I came across the possibility of the discipline of cognitive science. And I said, that's close to what Plato was doing. I want to do that. So I went back and did that. And you just, and then as I finished that, <clears throat> as I was in graduate school, like I did my, my degree in cog sci, and then I decided to go back and do my PhD, right? And, and concentrate on cognitive science. And then as I was doing that, they started asking me to teach courses on the introduction to cognitive science, and then a course within psychology on thinking and reasoning. And slowly I started to bring in the stuff, both from the Socratic tradition about rationality and from the Buddhist and the Taoist traditions about mindfulness and flow. I was, I think, the first person at the University of Toronto to teach about mindfulness, to teach about flow in an academic setting. And I noticed that as I was bringing these things, my students were like, whoa, I want more of this. I want more of this. Yeah. And I, then I, I started teaching a course on the psychology of wisdom. And then all of a sudden, everything, my, 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 my academic life and, and for lack of a better word, my existential spiritual life, they suddenly were back together. And I realized that it wasn't sort of a unique thing to me that I wasn't some weird alien being. There was a lot of people struggling, like yeah. trying yeah. to get those two to come back together. And so somebody who's had a huge influence on me, Evan Thompson was a colleague of mine at, at that time at UFT. He was supposed to teach a course on Buddhism and cognitive science. He couldn't teach it. And he said, well, John could teach it. So I started teaching that course and I started to develop and mm -hmm. I taught this course for a long time. And I started to develop this thesis about why Buddhism and Kogsai were coming together. But then I started to realize it was even bigger than that. There was this whole issue about the meaning crisis. And I developed this historical argument. And that by that time, my scientific work was also coming into convert. Everything just came together. And the more it came together, the more I... I I was getting responses from students is like, this is what I wanted university to be. This is why mm -hmm. I came to university, right? Um, you know, not just intellectual information, but existential transformation. And so, um, and then one of the students who had taken that course with me came to me and said, you should make a video series on this. And I have, prof I have like, you know, professional skills as a videographer. My dad's an editor. He'll do it for free. I've got people that are the sound and we put together Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And that's how I got here. Amazing. And this was in 2018, right? Just before? Uh, to early 2019, before, yeah, considerably before COVID, over a year or so before COVID, yeah. Yeah, incredible. It's, it's inc interesting what happens, right, when you just follow your um, passion and your curiosity, and then <laughs> the, the universe will always provide in that way, like sends you a video <laughs> and, and all of that. Very cool. Can you explain in a few words what the meaning crisis is all about? What does it mean? Why are we in it? And how do you propose we get out of it? I'm not laughing at your question. I'm laughing at my answer. My, <laughs> my answer is 50 hours long. Um, so <laughs> I'll, try, I'll, I'll try and condense it down. Um, there's different ways of looking at what the meaning crisis is. One, you can look at the symptoms in our society. You can look at the fact that you know suicide rates are going up. Uh, even especially in the younger generation and the age at which suicides are appearing are younger as well um, and even in affluent areas uh, and of course there's increased rates of anxiety depression loneliness addiction there's people who are fleeing the flu fleeing the real world and preferring to live in the virtual world um, it's called the virtual exodus you also see positive signs that people are trying to address this 
hunger for meaning. You've got the mindfulness movement. I have criticisms of it, but it's trying to give people back that sense of connectedness. Um, you have the the you have this in, almost inexplicable inexplicable resurgence of stoicism as a major thing uh, because it's designed to try and do exactly what we're talking about here. Use philosophy not just for intellectual endeavor, but for the cultivation of wisdom, right? And so you can you can you can even see it in popular culture. Uh, Chris Master Pietro and Philip Misovic and I, we wrote a book called Zombies in Western mm -hmm. Culture, right? Because the zombie is the symbol of the meaning crisis. The, these beings are, they're not supernatural. They're, they're just decayed versions of us, right? They, they lack intelligibility. They can't speak, but they hunger for brains, the organ of meaning making, right? They, they drift aimlessly. They're in a group, great large group, but they don't form any communities. They, they, they are a perversion of the Christian sense of resurrection to the new life. They're actually a resurrection that's a decadent to an empty existence. Like it's just a symbol of the meaning crisis and it's so powerful mm -hmm. in popular culture. Um, so you can see that you can look at the symptoms and then you can also look at it like, like if you were on almost treating this like a diagnosis, you could look at, well, what might be the causes of that? And there's sort of two aspects to the causation. I'm trying to keep this as brief as possible. Um, one is this, this idea, um, and there's a lot more argumentation behind it, but the very processes that make us intelligently adaptive make us perpetually susceptible to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior, both individually and collectively. That means across cultures and history, what people have done is they have created ecologies of practices, various practices, and you need to have a whole bunch of practices because your cognition is very complex. You need an ecology of practices that ameliorate that self-deception. And what, it, what you also want is you want to afford what is missing in the meaning crisis. There's that sense of connectedness mm -hmm. to yourself, to other people, to the world, right? That's what people are trying to get back to, um, or that's what they're looking for. That's what the meaning in life literature says. So, so wisdom is ecologies of practices that ameliorate foolishness and afford flourishing, that, that sense of a living connectedness. Now, that means wisdom is not optional for you, and you need ecologies of practices, but ecologies of practices have to be honed. They have to be situated in, in, within communities and institutions that give you access to the power of distributed cognition, to collective intelligence. This is what religions have done. Mm -hmm. This is what religions have done. And so what happens for a lot of historical reasons is that we've entered a period of secularism in which the functionality of religion has been pushed aside. This is Nietzsche, you know, God is dead. But Nietzsche also, notice who he's talking to when he says that. He's not talking to the atheist. He's sorry, he's not talking to believers. He's talking to the atheists. He's saying God is dead and you don't realize what you've done. You don't, you, you, we're not worthy of it yet, right? And so one way of thinking about the meaning crisis is this. We need, we need what religion used to do for us in, in so far as the way it helps, it gave us ecologies of practices. But for many people, the established religions are no longer viable. The scientific secular worldview just can't simply be left behind or abandoned. And so they're suffering a wisdom famine. I, I, I'll ask my students, where do you go for information? The internet, uh, social media. Where do you go for knowledge? A little bit more of a pause. Uh, the university, science. Where do you go for wisdom? Deafening silence. They have no answer. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a hunger for this. They are they 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 don't find the existing religions viable. They can't. They know they can't abandon the secular scientific worldview. They've seen attempts to try and fill this gap politically with pseudo-religious ideologies that drench the world in blood, right, in the 20th century. So they're sort of like, well, where do I go? I don't want to go into politics. Some of them do, but they, you get this weird thing happening. Some of them try the established religions, and if it works for people, great. I'm not here to, to like criticize that. But for many people, they go, where do I? And so they, they find nowhere to go. So what do they do? They, 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 they'll, they'll, this is what they'll, most of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S's, no official religions, describe themselves as spiritual, but not religious. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Yeah. What that means is a spirituality that I do by myself, for myself, and I cobble it together on my own, and, right, and, and I try, it's like, the chances that that's going to get the functionality you're looking for are very small. The chances mm-hmm. that it's going to be warped by the very self-deceptive machinery you're trying to deal with are very high mm-hmm. and that's the meaning crisis mm. what comes up for me here don't you think that the root of the meaning crisis is actually the consciousness crisis so i mean it depends what you mean by that i mean uh, one way of thinking about the the meaning crisis is that we've reduced um we've reduced our understanding of what knowing is yeah uh, to merely the propositional level. And we've left out the procedural, the perspectival, the participatory. We've left out all the non-propositional aspects. Um, And insofar as we have done that, we have actually disconnected our awareness from most of the kinds of processes that are actually responsible for creating meaning. So we think meaning is largely about structuring propositions. And, and, And that's important. I'm a scientist. Doing that's important. I'm not trying to be dismissive, but we were we we forget that that knowing ha- that knowing that gold is an element is dependent on knowing how to do a lot of things, mm-hmm. and that knowing how is dependent on knowing what it's like to have this conscious state of mind, to have this perspective, and that that knowing what it is like is ultimately based on knowing what it is knowing by being with other things, mm-hmm. like because I'm an embodied being, right. I know what it is like to be a body because I am a body. I participate in embodiment and that connects me to the world in a profound way. So insofar as we've lost an awareness of how we're embodied and embedded and enacted and extended, um, we are trapped in a kind of propositional tyranny, which is another way of thinking about the meaning crisis. I don't know if that aligns with what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I mean. Because if you don't have the awareness, like everything is, it's just incredibly narrow. And my experience is that once people start to experience something that goes beyond the rational mind, their whole perspective on life can change. And so that's why I, I ask, don't you think is... The consciousness crisis actually the root sure. of the meaning yeah so i, I mean i i i might um i might re- reframe what you say let me try this and see if it lands for you i would i would i would i would actually challenge the identification of rationality with the logical propositional form of thinking i think mm-hmm. rationality should be understood as it was by socrates my hero as mm-hmm. the process of following the logos 
following those self-organizing dynamical processes of self-correction and self-transcendence. Mm -hmm. And that I think is the core. So I think mindfulness, for example, <clears throat> and I've argued this you know, and published on this, mindfulness is a form of rationality. It's a rationality of attention rather than a rationality of inference, but it is self-correcting. It is a process of self-correcting and self-transcending our awareness of the world. And that needs as much self-correction as our beliefs need self-correction. Mm -hmm. And I think we should expand the notion of rationality rather than letting it be limited to <clears throat> the logical manipulation of our propositions. Mm -hmm. The reason why I say that is because rationality, again, if you understand it Socratically, is a call to rigorous responsibility. It's a call to humility and rigorous responsibility and to engage in deep self-examination and self-correction. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Let's say people recognize themselves in what you described as the meaning crisis and they, they realize, oh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely in that right now in some, in some way. What can they do to awaken from it? So, uh, I mean, uh, the idea is you have to address both the historical uh, factors driving the meaning crisis and the uh, per, uh, the, 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 what you might call the perennial problems. So human beings face perennial problems of self-deception. They face, they face they're, they're continually threatened by anxiety, absurdity, alienation, mm -hmm. right? They're, right? And you need sets of practices, ecologies of practices. No one practices, a, there's no panacea of practice. Every practice has strengths and weaknesses, and you have to find complementary relations between them. Mm. Like you should always complement a meditative practice with a contemplative practice. You should complement a, a seated practice with a moving practice. You should complement an awareness practice with an inferential practice. You have to dress <clears throat> the dynamic complexity uh, uh, of your cognition. This is why, for example, uh, I, I, I'm not a Buddhist, but the Eightfold Path represented by an eight-spoked wheel, which is a self-organizing, self-revolving process is so important because it's saying, no, no, all of these things have to simultaneously and in a coordinated fashion be addressed if you want people to undergo uh, transformation. Mm -hmm. So you need to look for an ecology of practices and one that is well vetted both by traditions and by the current best current cognitive science we have. Then you need to make sure that some of those practices are dialogical practices in which you're entering into genuine dialogue, not, not echo chambering, but where you are pursuing deep reflection with other people in order to give you a community mm -hmm. in which you are curating and vetting your ecology of practices. And you're also sharing it with others and having them share it with you. You have to replicate a lot of the functionality which I deeply respect, by the way, uh, the existing religions. But you also have to pay attention to the historical forces. You, you've got to think about, right, how you are, what kind of worldview you can make that will bridge in an intellectually, ethically, and rationally responsible manner between your community and its ecology of practices and the scientific worldview. And it goes both ways. Mm -hmm. You should think of good ways to challenge that scientific worldview. Science should always be open to good arguments, mm -hmm. good challenges, mm -hmm. good questions. Um, and insofar as people are doing that, and insofar as the, those communities mm -hmm. are, are networking together into communities of communities, 
then I think we can respond to the meaning crisis. Question that I always ask myself also with my work um, to address the meaning crisis, what is the best way to do it, right? Is it working on individual level? Is it, is it working on a company level? Or is it yes. working on a systematic change level? Uh, my answer is you should get, that's what I meant by distributed. Most mm -hmm. of our real problem solving is done not by as individual, it's done as in what's called distributed cognition. Mm -hmm. It takes a bunch of people and machinery to navigate a ship. No one person does it, right? Just to yeah. use that as an analogy. And so I think individually people have, should be cultivating serious, right? The serious ecologies of practices. But as I said, with they should belong to communities and communities of communities such that distributed cognition is addressing all of these levels in an integrated fashion. Again, and again, I'm not trying to push religion. I put on my tombstone, neither nostalgia nor utopia. That's not what I'm doing. But religions worked at all of those levels in an integrated fashion. And that was for good reason. And they, 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 they allowed people to do things individually. You could be a monk and retire into a cave as a hermit, but you also belong to the machinery of the church. And it, gave, it, it, it was this multi-layered dynamical system. And I think we have to take seriously that the, the answer has to be exactly something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so interesting. Obviously, the, the work that I do is very much on individual level on, in, in companies, right? And what I see is when people, also the leaders that I work with, when they start to wake up, they want to transfer that knowledge out, but they don't yes. know how. Yes, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Isn't that, isn't that important though? I mean, yeah. that's it's so important because when people get genuine wisdom, yeah. Yeah. they always want to share it. Yeah. They always want to share it. And, and they, they, they do it in, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't have the answer, right? So that's what I'm always trying to get my head around. Like, how can I effectively get this knowledge out in organizations and really affect change on, on, on a larger level in that way? Um, I don't know what I see sometimes also with other people uh, then awakening and then thinking they have to awaken everyone else is maybe also not the best way to do it, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, yes. <laughs> it's not yes. in, my, in my power. Anyone else is to awaken other people, but it does pose the question, how can we get this knowledge out more broadly? Yes. And that's why I made the point about, you know, we do need to think about rigor and responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that and, and that's why I don't want to leave this notion R ratio ration, rationing proper proportioning mm -hmm. right that's why I don't want to leave the word rational uh, to uh, to people who just think of it as you know the logical manipulation of propositions mm -hmm. we, we need to call people both individually and collectively to a to like, and this is why you know we, we should at some point also talk about virtue this is why you know we need to call to people you know, we, we, we need to, we need to do two, two things simultaneously. We need to call them to rigor and responsibility, but we also need to attract them by pointing out the beauty of wisdom, the beauty of meaning mm -hmm. and, and, and how much, it, how much capacity it has for, uh, for transforming uh, the world. People will make huge sacrifices to their standard of living, their subjective well-being if they believe it will bring them more meaning. That is, that, that's the only explanation, by the way, for why people have children. If you have a child, 
all of the subjective well-being measures go down. They collapse. Yes. You ask yes. people, why are you doing it? You, well, because it makes my life more meaningful. And notice the language they use. Because I'm connected to something beyond myself. That's something that has a reality and value other than my egocentric preferences. Yes. Thank you for pointing this out. I, For the longest time, I've always felt that a lot of people actually have children for the wrong reasons, simply yes. because they need meaning in their lives and they yes. don't know how else to find it. And so they yes. have children. Yes, uh, It's a very unpopular opinion that I have here. So I'm happy that there was a... I, I, think, I yeah. think they do. Uh, yeah. and, and I think your criticism it should also be considered very carefully. I think the fact that I think it's I think it's right to think that having a child is an, a, is an action of yeah. intense meaning. I think that's right. But if you're doing it as a surrogate, like like like, I, I, like give me a sec on this because I want to expand on this. This is yeah. important. We 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 tr we try a lot of surrogates, and I'm just going to use God as a placeholder for you know a a, a deeper re connection to a deeper reality. Right. Yeah. I'm just going to use that as a, and we try to make our romantic relationships or our relationships with our children or our family hold the burden that was held by God and culture. And they can't do it. Yes. Like, this, this is what you can do with people. You can ask that. How many people think that romantic relationships are the most significant thing for meaning in life? They'll put up their hands. How many of you have suffered tremendously because of your romantic relationship? Same people put up their hands. It's like, yes. Romantic relationships should be a place in which people are affording each other's meaning in life, but it can't be the ultimate place. Neither can your relationships to your children, neither can your relationships to your work, right? You, 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 can't, you can't make any one of these things carry that burden. They should belong to something that can carry that burden. And again, I am not, I'm going to say this, I am mm -hmm. not pushing any kind of nostalgic return to religion. That is not what I am talking about. If people are hearing that, please, you're mishearing me. That is yeah. not what I'm saying. Yes, music to my ears, finally. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is also why a lot of unhealthy patterns are created. This is why a lot of people pursue unhealthy relationships, unhealthy careers, yes. all of that, yeah. because yeah. they put, they they don't know what them, the meaning of life or their life is. And so they attach it to something else. Well, then it must be my job. Well, then it yes. must be my child. Then it must be this relationship. And I mean, that then poses the question, what do you think is the purpose of life? So uh, 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 I want, uh, by the way, before I answer that question, I want to yeah. note another thing that is taking the place of God and it acts very much like a God and that's the inter internet and social media. People okay. treat this as it's omnipresent, It is the oracle that will give you all of your answers and information. You devote tons of attention to it. You sacrifice other things to be present with it. It shines upon you. So be careful, mm -hmm. right? The, the, this medium that we're in can also uh, try to bear that burden as well. And, and so you see people addicted to their phones. Like, have you met people when, when I've lost my phone? And yeah. they're like... There's an existential anxiety to them that they would never have, even if they've lost, like, I, I don't know, you know, some other yeah. important tool that they have. People don't get that, out, like, but when they lose their phone, they feel like they're losing their identity. I just wanted to point that out as another thing, because and this is a current contributor to the meaning crisis in a powerful way. Yeah. So now, to, 
Oh, well, did you want to respond to so, that first? Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, I can't remember where I read it, um, but there was a study where they where people were asked either you can take an electric shock or you sit 15 minutes with yourself and people would rather take the shock than yeah. the yep. silence. Yep. I mean, that says it all. And, and that's one of the things that has been exacerbated by COVID, right? So mm -hmm. COVID, COVID, our culture, and this is part of why people talk about a narcissism epidemic, our culture makes everything ref, refer to the self, but it does not cultivate any depth to that selfhood. Mm -hmm. It does not cultivate a, a, a Socratic depth. So in COVID, people were thrown back onto their own sort of private subjectivity, only to find for many people that it was very shallow and it did not have much resiliency to it. And so again, I, I, I that yeah, I can see why people would rather take a shock than just be alone. <laughs> I want to go back to your other big question because it's a good one about I don't I don't propose to tell people what the meaning of life is. That's a metaphysical claim about if there is a plan or something like that. Um, I don't have the relevant expertise. I have doubts about you know predestination and things like that. What I do talk about is something that I do study and many people do study scientifically, which is meaning in life and also philosophically. Susan's Wolf, Susan, Susan Wolf's book, Meaning in Life and Why It Matters, it's a masterpiece. It should be read. She makes very clear arguments about what meaning in life is and how you can't reduce it to sort of technical mastery or more or being a moral person. Meaning is its own independent dimension. And so meaning in life is the degree to which people feel that connectedness to themselves to each other and to the world that alleviates or ameliorates enough anxiety, absurdity, um, you know, alienation, that life is worth it to them. That's what meaning in life is, right? Do you have those kinds of connections enough that you don't find life overwhelmingly absurd, futile, that you don't feel yourself overwhelmingly alienated? that you're not overwhelmingly beset by both psychological and or existential anxiety. So that you can say, this is right, this is kind of like a Nietzschean claim. You mm -hmm. can say, I would repeat it all again, because even though it has all this suffering, all this pain, all this failure in it, there was so much meaning that it was worth it. That's what I study. That's what I want to understand. Mm. Beautiful. What do you say to people, though, who are very much in the doing mode of things? Like if you say that to them, as this is the meaning in life, they will still have question. OK, so what, what do I then do day in, day out? What you have to do day in and day out is you have to develop virtues, which are habits uh, for wisdom. That's what a virtue is. It's a habit. You have to cultivate habits and skills. That's actually what a virtue is. It's a habit and a skill. A habit and skill of, uh, of wisdom. What habits and skills are you training to overcome self-deception? What habits and skills are you training to enhance your ability to be connected to yourself? Not narcissistically uh, in, in, enamored with yourself, but Socratically exploring and examining yourself. What, what, how, are you, how, are you, uh, how are you training habits and skills for connecting to other people? How, are you learning deeper ways of communicating and communing with others? And then if you say, well, I don't have time for that, I challenge you. If you're going to challenge me, well, what should I do? I'm going to answer you honestly. I'm going to say, look at your screen time. Mm -hmm. Take a look at your screen time. Take a look at it. 
We know it's huge and we know that it's largely deleterious to you. Mm-hmm. How much of that are you willing to trade for or, or at least tr- transform the screen time into training habits and skills, virtues of, of wisdom? I, I mean, that's my answer. And if you, well, and it's like, well, I don't want to do that. Well, then you don't want to do what you need to do. I, like, I, if you want me to give you a magical sort of just say this every day or just, you know, that's not, that's not how it works. That's like you coming to me and saying, well, I want to be a virtuoso of, of music. What should I need to do? Well, you need to practice that. Oh, I don't want to do any practices, but I want to become a virtuoso. Well, there's no, I can't give you. Mm-hmm. You've framed the question the wrong way. There, there's a deep connection between virtue and virtuosity. Mm-hmm. What do you then say to people who are very uh, keen to pursue a certain cause or so, like the climate activists or, you know, any of that? Is that also just another means to put meaning to? Of course it is. And again, let's be careful. Just like I don't, just like I was wanted to clearly say, having a child, being deeply in love with somebody are places where meaning should be appearing, should, should be emerging. Same thing. You should, you should be involved with meaningful work, meaningful tasks, right? However, ask yourself, Like what, what would you, do you ultimately, I mean, and I don't mean this facetiously, do you want to pursue these goals foolishly or wisely? Mm-hmm. You want other people to be pursuing them foolishly or wisely. And, 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 and you'll say, well, I'm, I'm wise enough to pursue this. Well, you don't think that about other things. You don't think you could just walk into a place of business and say, my common sense intuition is enough. They'd say, no, no, you have to go and cultivate these skills and these habits. I need the expertise. I need you your, to see evidence of your training. Same, I want to be a doctor, but I don't want to, I just, I can just do it from my, my heart. Mm-hmm. Like you'd go, that's ridiculous. No, you have to, this is, this is a kind of Socratic argument. It's like, no, no, we require people when they undertake important tasks to have the relevant experience and expertise. If you really think the task is important, you should be rigorous and responsible in having the relevant ex- expertise and experience. Mm-hmm. Bring, like, and, and there's no reason why the two can't support each other. As you undertake this task, it can reveal to you weaknesses that you have, uh, and then, uh, and then you, you can use that to cultivate wisdom. As you're cultivating wisdom, you can bring that to the task. Uh, they can reciprocally reconstruct and afford each other. Yes, I'm letting that sink in for a moment because I think it's really valuable uh, perspective. I see so many people, you know, that when they go through the awakening process, number one, they want to share it, which is a great thing. But then number two, they think they have this, you know, all of a sudden they discovered their purpose and and then they just have to go and build the next company and, and, and do this and that. And even though it's for a noble cause, I, I often see them being caught up in the same hamster wheel and completely missing yes. the point of, the conscious the the more the higher awareness that's exactly evidence for and this is why people go into therapy they can know propositionally that i I know that i should do this and this and this that's not the same thing as knowing how or knowing what it's like or knowing what kind of person you're going to become right those are different those are deeper and different kinds of knowing and you have to bring with like and 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 like like just like your propositional knowledge takes years of cultivation in order to hone it you have to like you have to put in There's no shortcut. Wisdom is not optional, and there are no shortcuts to it. I mean, that 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 that's 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 a, and our culture doesn't like that. Yes, I get it. Yes. 
because so we true. want, come on, what's the bottom line and how do I get there? And how do I get there faster? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's an instance of modal confusion. Like modal, con, like, so Fromm talked about the having mode and the being mode. The having mode, are, are, are these, this is the mode that we enter into. Notice it's a way of being with things, that's participatory knowing, in which we are addressing our having needs. I need to have air. I need to have water. I need to have food. In that mode, I need to quickly control things so that they're consumable and manipulatable by me. There's nothing wrong with that because the having needs are real and they need to be met. Now, you can tell when you're in a having mode if I could offer you a shortcut and you would take it. So, for example, if I could say to you, instead of brushing your teeth, I can, do, I can give you this thing that will only take one second. You go, great, great. I'm <laughs> like, yeah, excellent, right? But the being mode is different. Mm -hmm. The being mode is met by cultivating an, a new way of being. Like, I want to be more mature. I want to be in love. And then when I ask you that, that when I, I talk about the activities that give you that, right? You, you, you don't typically, like, if, like, for example, if you're actually making love, notice the difference, not just having sex, mm -hmm. but making love with somebody. Do you want a shortcut? Yeah, no way. When you're in the flow, when you're in the flow yeah. state and yeah. you're feeling deeply at one, you, you want to get to the end as soon as possible. When you're playing great music or listening to it and it's really, you want to get, no, no, skip all that stuff in between. I just want to get to the final few notes. Yeah, yeah. Right? So this is the problem, right? We can get into modal confusion when we, when we are pursuing the being needs, but with a having mentality. Mm -hmm. So I want to be in love. So I have lots of sex. Mm -hmm. I want to be mature. So I'll have a car. And right. If you, if, if you just think by manipulating, right, your propositions, you're going to get, you're, 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 you're often, you're confusing having propositions, mm -hmm. think about the language with undergoing transformation. Mm -hmm. How can, how can people make that switch? Practice. Yes. Yeah. They have to practice. Well, they have to practice. They have to practice activities that have a, two, a, a couple of important features to them. They're, they're serious play activities. We play music. We go to watch a play by Shakespeare. What I mean, and, and children, when they're developing, they're engaged in serious play. They're not yeah. playing for entertainment. They're playing in the being mode. Yeah not playing to have fun, notice the verb, they're playing to become an adult, right? So we need, we need practices that are, 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 that are serious play, that are done for their own sake and that are done for transformation. So mm -hmm. think of the practices, think of the things you do that you do for their own sake, those, and then think about, are they, are they coupled to the cultivation of wisdom? Are they coupled to you transforming your relationship to yourself, to other people and to the world? And mm -hmm. if not, find those practices, cultivate mm -hmm. them. Well, speaking of what practices do you cultivate? I know you're meditate, meditating, you're doing Vipassana meditation, right? Yeah, so I do, I do in a, a, a quite, uh, quite a complex and I don't want to intimidate people because this has been cultivated over years. Yeah. Um, so I, yes, I regularly do uh, Vipassana practices, uh, Qigong practices, um, uh, 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 a contemplative practice. Uh, uh, I do a Neoplatonic contemplative practice. Um, I also uh, engage in what's called Lexio Divina, which is a practice for reading a text, not for information, but for transformation. 
Um, I engage in inner dialogue practices uh, derived from like internal family systems theory and, uh, and ally work. Um, I engage in philosophia, which is I read books, uh, I, I study books that, uh, that are meant to be studied as a way of transformation, not just as a way of giving me sort of arguments mm -hmm. or propositions. So I, I practice what is called philosophia. Um, I practice um, philosophical uh, fellowship, which is a way of collectively reading a text with other people for philosophical transformation. And I practice dialectic into dialogos when teaching people how to do this, which is a way of structuring a dialogue so that it takes on a life of its own and both people are experiencing emergence, transformation, insight. They both feel that they are moving to places they couldn't get to on their own. I would love to talk about this uh, okay. a, a bit, but before I do, just a question about your contemplative practice. Uh, can, you, can you explain a little bit what, how, how you do that? How, how do you contemplate? For a very long time, I practiced meta uh, as my contemplative yeah. practice. Um, but what happened is meta and Vipassana sort of became integrated into prajna for me. And so I, I, I then moved to undertake new practices. Uh, uh, for a while, I was doing the stoic practice of the view from above. But then I realized that that practice was actually taken into a Neoplatonic contemplative practice. So I can sort of talk you through it quickly if, that, if that's what you're asking for. Is that yeah. what you would like? Yes, okay. I'd love that. So you get people first to become aware of their awareness. Like, first of all, just become aware of your different perceptual awarenesses, your sight, your smell, right? Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, sound, taste, touch. And then what do they all have in common? The awareness. And so become aware of awareness. And then realize that your awareness is not just inside you, but it's also outside you. So inside and outside awareness, right? And so you first people get, you get people into that sort of open awareness of awareness, a oneness of awareness. And then you get people to, so you move through these different levels of all the Greek terms are like phusis, uh, suke, noesis, henosis, theosis. But I'll just describe what you do as a practice. At the first level, when people are in this awareness, you get them to become aware of like of the continuity of their awareness, how it's unfolding. And it's not just, it's not just in them, also outside of them. Reality is unfolding moment to moment. There's a through line and it's like the rhythm of reality. And then you say, okay, now next, notice how within you, right, there's this self-organization, this like this, what Spinoza calls this Canada, everything, it, like it's, it, it's organizing itself, it's feeding back on itself, and then, and then realize that everything else is doing that, that's suke, how everything is like this, it's, it's got, right, and realize that, and then, and that's like the melody, everything has a melody, it's unfolding itself through time, and you are too, and you're knowing of it, and it's unfolding itself, these, they're, they're inseparable in your awareness. And then move, right? And then move to, oh, beyond the melody, all these melodies are in harmony. There's a world. They're somehow all one together. And you realize that. And then you realize, well, that continuity, that canadus and that coherence, they're all just different three, three, three different aspects of this kind of fundamental oneness. And you realize, wow, that oneness is everywhere. It's not a thing. It's a universal process. And then you realize, oh, behind the process, there must be a principle. Mm. And then, but even the principle is based on something more profound and ineffable. And that's the, that's the ultimate, right? That cannot ever be grasped. And then you realize that those three things, the process, the principle, and the profundity are also deeply one in some sense. And now 
you're at the stage of right of theosis. Mm-hmm. You do this every day by yourself. Yes. yes, I also lead other people through it. So when we do, when Chris with Chris Matabietro and Guy Sestock and I, when we do the weekend workshops, we take pe- we take people through a meditative practice. Then I teach them this contemplative practice. Yeah. Then we teach them some basic circling practices. Then we teach them philosophical fellowship, and then we teach them dialectic into dialogos. Yes. How can people participate in this? <laughs> Go to the workshops. Asking we're- for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we're going to do another one probably in July. Um, okay. So, right, like, uh, and we're because we're also working to bring in um, some shadow work so people can re- uh, realize projection when they're engaged in dialogical practice. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then we are also working on that. That's sort of an introductory level. We're also working on sort of a second tier. Uh, that'll probably come out later towards the end of the year. So um, yeah, I mean, I'm doing a lot of participant observation, participant experimentation at a lot of these communities of practice, and then trying to interact with people. Uh, I'm working with Taylor Barrett, for example, here in Toronto on Authentic Relating Toronto uh, and trying to get like with, with what he's doing. Like I'm just involved. So as, mu- I, as much as I'm doing the science over here yeah. and I'm never going to stop doing that, by the way, yeah. teaching here, I'm also doing something like psychotechnological engineering over here, trying to engineer practices and ecologies of practices from what I'm seeing in emergent communities, what I know from the cognitive science, feeding it back, like it's, it's crazy, uh, but it's, 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 it's so much, well, it's very, very meaningful. Yeah, I, uh, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. You, you are really on a, on a roll. Uh, I can tell. <laughs> do, you, do you already do this in organizations as well? Uh, so, so right now, I mean, uh, right now I've been talking to a lot of people who want uh, to me to sort of bridge into organizations. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I'm doing that. Um, Tim Bishop in, at Next Level is somebody I'm talking a lot with. Uh, because uh, with 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 the work that he does, he has a, a co- company, a business where they go into uh, businesses and they they don't go in and do the usual thing about how's your technology or what's your mm-hmm. skills, right? They go in and they look at what's the culture in a in a really deep sense. What's the culture of this place? Mm-hmm. How is the distributed cognition working? How can we get clearer about this culture and make it one that is actually supportive of meaningful engagement? Um, and so I'm talking with a lot of people, uh, but I haven't, re- it hasn't yet been the case that we've been invited into particular organizations uh, to teach them this. Now, we have been invited to a couple of people who do, like who have podcasts and communities that do bridge that, um, like, uh, like Aubrey. And you, yes, 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 yes. And you. Um, and so that's about the stage where it is at for me right now. Yeah. And, and part of it, and part of it is, uh, part of it has nothing to do with the, I don't know what to call this community, the, the bridging community. Um, it's just that I'm also, you know, spread very thin in, in certain ways, time-wise. And so in some ways I'm holding things back, not because I want to, but yeah, just yeah, because yeah. there's so much I'm trying to, trying to do. Yeah, I can imagine. There's a time and place for everything. Well, well I'm also going to be working with Chloe Valdery and she has her theory of enchantment, which she takes in and she has a different way uh, 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 and I think a much better way of trying to help corporations deal with sort of supremacist thinking. Um, And it's really very powerful. And I'm trying to, she's asked me to integrate the mindfulness practices and some of the wisdom cultivating practices into her work. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think the work she's doing, uh, I think there's good reason to believe it's much more effective than a lot of the training programs that HR is imposing uh, on people about around these issues. There, we can't, we, we have to remember that it is possible to be, pursue a goal in a foolish and inept way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I, you know, trying to, trying to bring both better cognitive science and better philosophical in the sense of the love of wisdom framework onto this is also something I'm working with her on. Amazing. Is it worthwhile to speak about the circling practices or would you recommend people checking out your workshops to learn more about this? Or at least maybe you can say what it is and how it benefits people in the interest of time. Yeah, so uh, so Guy Senstock and other people independently, and by the way, this is another positive symptom of the meaning crisis, like Thomas Steininger, Steininger, not, there's no D in his name, sorry, Steininger in, in Germany with his, with his Evolve and Emerge work, right? And so you have, and, you know, and, uh, you know, a Taylor here, but the, uh, all of the, what's emerging are these, are, are people going into dialogical practices mm-hmm. where the purpose of the communication is connectedness and communing and self-transcendence and transformation rather than just telling people what you believe or trying to convince them. So try, although we're using language, we're shifting off prioritizing the propositional into in, right, really prioritizing the procedural, the perspectival, the participatory. So if, if you allow me to put that into a slogan, it's communication for the sake of communing, where that communing is understood as a deeply transformative process. So that's circling. And I, you know, and I, I practice it and, you know, and Guy Senstock, who was the inventor of it in North America, is a good friend of mine. And, you know, um, and Guy and I have been talking a lot. And then I, I sort of said to him, you're doing all of this. And this is like philea. Philea is the, the, the you know, the, 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 the fellowship love. That's mm-hmm. what it means in Greek. It's different from eros and agape. It's where, it's what happens when we, when we love belonging to, or like you've been to, you've had a conversation. I know you have. I, no, no human being has, I've ever met has failed. I, have you ever been one of those conversations that took on a life of its own and took you into depths both within yourself and the other person and even into reality that you didn't foresee? And well, why not make that something that you could regularly and reliably practice? That's philia. But then I said to Guy, and we, we sort of said it together. We, we sort of came to it together. It's like, but the philia needs to be turned on Sophia. That's wisdom. Once people get this, then it should be turned on to cultivating wisdom. And then you get philia, Sophia, which are the original Greek words for philosophy. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this is the ancient way. That philosophy is an academic exercise, mm-hmm. but as the fellowship love of wisdom that is done both individually and communally in order to afford deep transformation. And so what we've been developing is we've been taking circling and then adding other practices onto it, like dial, like philosophical fellowship and dialectic into dialogos, so that people start to, after they know how to get into the shared flow state, they learn they learn how to turn that machine. I'm using that just as an mm-hmm. analogy. Onto what is it to be courageous? What is it to be wise? Mm-hmm. Not to get a final answer because there is no final answer, but to enter into a profound right relationship, a rigorous responsible relationship and you teach that method in your workshops yes okay how how can people 
know when the next workshop is on your website? Uh, don't or... go to my website. My website is <laughs> I've been it, on it. <laughs> it, it's, it's obsolete and it needs to be it needs to be reconstructed. The best thing to do is uh, uh, follow me on Twitter because I'll announce it on Twitter. That's the best thing to do. Okay. Perfect. Last topic that I want to touch upon, because I just spent uh, a few months in Mexico living in the jungle, having seen and experienced all sorts of things, psychedelics and conscious leadership, I'd love to yeah. talk about with you. Sure. Sure. Uh, what do you think can the next wave of psychedelics realistically achieve in the next couple of years? So... I mean, I think a lot is going to be achieved on the scientific front. I was in the UK last week and I was meeting with a bunch of scientists um, who are interested in my work as a way of, as a, as a framework for trying to sort of coordinate um, and give more of a philosophical reflection on the, the rapidly emerging and quite, quite good science about psychedelics. Mm -hmm. um, and so, first of all, I think the chances that we're going to learn a lot about um, altered states of consciousness and what they can and cannot do, um, I think that's going to that, that's going to rapidly increase. I also think we need to pay attention to the fact that the uses of psychedelics that are being like studied in transformation are largely in in a, a, con a therapeutic context, and, and that's not a, a coincidence. I think if you go into these experiences without a sapiential framework, a framework for in which you have on already existing ecologies of practices that has made you very aware of how, how prone we all are to self-deception and bullshitting ourselves. And that has really made you much more rigorous and responsible, right? If you go into those psychedelic experiences without that, they may open you up, right? Mm -hmm. But they can also get, and I, I, see, I see a lot of instances of people falling down a rabbit hole of their own wacky personal woo-woo metaphysics. Yes. And they, everybody is convinced that their metaphysics is somehow the absolute right one. And, and, you know, and I'll say to people, look, people come out of these experiences and they'll say, now I know there's a God. And they'll equally say, now I know there's no God, right? Yeah. And like, you, you, like, you, you, like you can't work. So if you work, if you stick, uh, if you go in, first of all, without the relevant framework, this is a development of the older idea of set and setting, but if it's got to be a sapiential set and setting. If you go in without that, you're, you're going to be problems. And if all you take out of that are propositions about the ultimate nature of reality, you've missed, right? You've really missed, uh, and you probably are now mistaken, but you've really missed the, the chance, the opportunity that these altered states have for putting you on the path for the cultivation of wisdom. Aiden Lyon is coming out with a book on the psychedelic experience where he talks deeply about what's the philosophy of psychedelics and also how can psychedelics contribute to the cultivation of wisdom. I think the science needs to be wedded to that project in mm -hmm. a very deep way. If not, we're gonna miss the opportunity. We're gonna mistake the reasons why we're doing it for coming up with weird and wacky wonderful metaphysics, and then we'll just make it a subjective commodity that corporations will be very willing to sell to us on a regular basis. Yeah, I already see that happening with certain yes. individuals, just observing them and how they how they deal with it. And then, yeah, not, not been in the spiritual world at all or in any sort of mindfulness practice. And then they go into psychedelics, they have one experience, and all of a sudden they think they have 
yeah, seeing yes. God and know God at the same time. Yes, yes. Um, spiritual ego, you could call that. Or spiritual bypassing. A spiritual bypassing, yes. Spiritual bypassing. Yeah. Spiritual bypassing. Remember when I said people can confuse the modes and they could pursue being needs within the having mode? Yes. People can also do the other. They can ref they can bypass the fact that they have to live in the embodied, embedded world, uh, right? And, and they're doing all this, and they're not facing uh, the actual issues that need to be faced. It's another form of modal confusion. When I was growing up in that fundamentalist church, we had a slogan, and it's still it's still valuable to me to, today. We used to talk about people who were so heavenly minded they were no earthly good. Mm, yes. Yeah. Very true. This is actually a big realization that I had come to at some point in my spiritual journey. It's not so much about, you know, connecting and staying in, in, in that space, but it's, it's about how do you embody it? What do you do day in, day out? Yeah, I, I like to quote Arthur Dykeman, and I can't find where he said it, but I'm yeah. pretty sure he said it. It's not ultimately about altered states of consciousness. It's about altered traits of character. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. That is so on point. I this is what most people forget. And I, feel, I see a big gap there right now. Like there's either a lot of people, well, most people are still fairly unconscious. And then there's this pe these people that are waking up and they go to like experience higher states of consciousness. And then they kind of stay in this feel good spirituality and then they do not come down again. So go back and read the original uh, tale of enlightenment in our tr tradition, Plato's para. Plato's parable of the cave the, the the lover of wisdom climbs out of the cave and the matrix is mm -hmm. a version of this climbs out of the cave and right and it takes time because your eyes have to adjust and then sees the sun and he doesn't stay there mm -hmm. goes back down into the cave goes yeah, back down yeah. into the cave yeah I mean I, I have kind of really changed also my meditation practice to incorporate more of the grounding because yeah. for me it's quite easy to uh, connect to like higher dimensions without any substances that's just uh i don't know that's how i'm being wired i guess and i like that space but i i realized when i am too much up there it's harder to function in the real world and yep. i've completely changed my meditation practice now that is only about grounding 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 Excellent. grounding that's it See, I was lucky because I was taught the, the meditative and the contemplative practices, but I was also taught Tai Chi Chuan. Mm -hmm. That's why you said you have to supplement it, right? Yep, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. That, that is hopefully valuable for people who are listening to this um, to not just focus on the higher aspects, but also bringing it down to the earthy realm. <laughs> yeah, 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 very much, very much. John, I have so many more topics that I could potentially start with you, but I want to be mindful of time. And I think we've got through a lot already. So I want to thank you for your time. And it was amazing to talk to you. I hope I get the opportunity at some point again. I'd, I'd love to come back. So if at some point in the future, you'd like me to come back and address some of your remaining questions, I'd be very happy to do so. I thoroughly enjoyed this. This was, this was very, very, very meaningful to me. Amazing. Glad to hear that.